Let us pray. Heavenly Father, mighty God, ruler of the cosmos, creator of us all, creator of reality, our peace. I pray that you give us this day what we need, what we need to know you better, what we need to serve you more, what we need for our lives to conform more and more to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. As I began to look at the different passages, different readings for this week, trying to figure out which way to go with these and where God was leading, the passage from the Colossians stood out, kind of. It stood out almost on one leg. It ends at verse 14. So I looked at the next week's reading, and that one begins at verse 21 and on. So I thought to myself, what sort of a criminal act is this? <laughs> These people who have put the lectionary together have missed one of the greatest passages in the entire scriptures and have left this void in the cosmos unfilled. So I looked in the matter a bit more, and it turns out they haven't missed it. It's actually read on Christ the King Sunday, verses 15 to 20. But since I, I don't know if I'll be doing the sermon that day or if I'll ever do another sermon, <laughs> I figured I'm going to steal the verses from Christ the King and use it for my sermon today. Now, the reason for that is... This is my favorite passage in the entire scriptures. This is the one that is most intimately related to my own journey. It's the basis for my Christianity not only, but it's the basis of how I've come to perceive reality and life itself. So after Paul begins his letter to the Colossians, and he, he begins with this great thanksgiving to God for the Colossians' faith and love and, and uh, the fact that they've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. This thanksgiving comes to this climax of fireworks almost, where Paul begins to describe reality the really real in the entire cosmos. So I'll read it for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Amen. I feel like I preached already. (laughs) Really, that was the most important part. At the age of 21, I experienced the death of someone which pushed me headlong into despair and darkness. The one who had died was God. God was dead. And the void that was left in the cosmos, this deep darkness, led me to the brink of insanity. I had become a real atheist. What I mean by that is that not just one intellectually, but one who received in my mind, heart, spirit, and body the full weight of a cosmos empty of meaning, empty of being. It is easy to claim that one is an atheist while somehow protecting yourselves, protecting themselves from the full force of its implication. And I would argue that the same applies to Christianity. It is easy to claim that one is a Christian without really tapping into the full implications of such a claim. I would say that most of us, whether Christian or an atheist, do walk a negotiated middle path. An atheist might believe that there is no ultimate absolute meaning binding reality together. But they go about living their lives as if there was such thing as meaning, love, goodness. And you will find many who are outstanding, morally outstanding human beings and work for all sorts of good in the world, like peace and justice. In the same way, you will find a Christian realist who knows in his head and his heart that there is a God and Christ is his full revelation of this God. But they would go about their business as if something else is governing things this side of the resurrection, like reality. In this way, a dualistic approach, in, a dualistic approach to reality is created. There is at least for the Christian heaven where God reigns and goes about his business, And there is earth that we need to negotiate with the harsh realities of lives, largely through other means. We might pray, but there's always this nagging sense that we need to get real with life and take care of business. After all, we're not living in this lofty, tranquil place called heaven. We live here on earth where things are real and and dangerous. And... We need to know how to handle our stuff. And if we don't, we don't have that sort of a power, we best connect ourselves with people and forces, principalities and whatnot, that have that sort of a power. And give them some homage in order to receive their favor. 
I want to suggest to you that this is the way we largely deal with what Paul calls powers and principalities and rulers. This is the way we deal with at least two dimensions of our existence, of our experience, of our lives. Business, our economic reality, and the nation, or the state. So at best, a division of labor becomes how we interpret things. Christ gets heaven, or our spiritual experiences, where the, our economic lives, businesses, corporations, and the state handle the stuff of this life on earth. So in effect, what becomes of Jesus is kind of like with the genie in the Aladdin story. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space. The difference being that Jesus does not live in a lamp. He lives in your heart. That wasn't an amen. I'm criticizing that. Now, powers and principalities and the rulers of this world, terms that I'll be exhausting today, they would be perfectly fine for Jesus to, be, to rule your heart and nowhere else. They'll be perfectly fine for Jesus to rule your heart but not get involved with their business. But that would not be the gospel. The gospel is too public and penetrating of a reality to be simply confined to the private sphere of your hearts. So in order to understand what is taking place in Colossians and how that possibly might give us something to think about, is we need to keep a couple of things in mind. First, that our tendency towards a dualistic way of re relating with reality. Second, how local context, philosophical currents, social structures, religious and national realities are always pushing the church towards a synthesis between these realities and the gospel. What Paul is concerned what he's concerned about, for at least with some in Colossians, they have absorbed a philosophy that is common in their environment. And this philosophy Paul is concerned about is undermining the apostolic gospel. What exactly is this philosophy? Well, we don't have the full details on what it is, but in, in broad strokes, we have an idea as to what it, it might have been. This philosophy seems to be a synthesis between the gospel, some Jewish teaching, and Hellenistic religions. So it's a synthesis between these three. It is not the Gnostic teachings that Paul is concerned about elsewhere, but it has some things that are in common. For instance, the body is understood to be evil, or at least it's inferior to the heavenly realm. So it's very much dualistic in this sense. There are heavenly powers and principalities that are threatening and they need to be appeased. 
Physical realities like fire, water, earth, uh, I'm missing something else, but all of that is under the rule of these powers. The angels that Paul talks about later on in the, uh, in the uh, letter are somehow related to these powers. It is likely that the gospel is incorporated in, in this context as in something like when Christ ascended into heaven, he delegates some of his powers and authority to these beings. And in order to appease them and gain some favor from them and also gain some wisdom and knowledge and insight, rigorous ascetic practices are prescribed. Harsh treatment of the body. This is what some in Colosseus are, uh, are believing. This is what they've come to absorb. So in order to correct this compromised way of understanding the gospel, Paul lifts up this magnificent picture of the cosmic Christ or the cosmic rule or the cosmic scope of the rule of Christ and that wondrous, wonderful, heavy reality. And if you notice, nothing is left out from the scope of his rule. If the Colossians had any confusion as to who has power, who rules, well, here's the picture. But more subtle than that, if the philosophy that they had absorbed has some issues with the body, well, they now have to contend with the fact that that great cosmic reality has taken on flesh, has taken on body not only, but has suffered a humiliating death under those powers and principalities and rulers. What the Colossians need to see, and what Paul brilliantly works out in his other letter to the Romans, is that this seeming defeat, this very real physical public death of Jesus is nothing to be ashamed of because it is exactly in and through that event that he defeats the powers and principalities and rulers and they become subjected to him. Notice also how the hymn zeroes in on Christ as the head of the body, the church. It's, it doesn't say head of anything else. It's not the powers and principalities. It doesn't say nations, but it says head of the church, the body. In the ancient world, Zeus was understood as the head and the cosmos, his body. After Paul gives this incredible picture of Christ as the one who creates and in and through him all things were made and all things hold together in him, but he is the head of the body, the church. What that means is that the universal church, not the local, and we get fixated on the local or the, our particular denomination, but the universal church, that cuts across time and space and all of that. That church, the universal church, is where Christ's primary activity, Christ's politics, 
the rule of Christ is being played out in this world while we are between the two advents, between the first and second coming. What this means is that while rulers, dominions, principalities will be and are judged, and nothing escapes Christ's rule, it doesn't mean that these will submit to that rule now. They certainly won't. The later on in, in the passage, it makes clear that they won't. In verse 20, Paul writes, making peace by the blood of his cross. That means he defeated the powers and rules over them by allowing or having the darkness of this world pour out its violence on him. This is the way he defeats the powers and principalities. What that means for the church is that you can no longer participate in the same sort of violence that characterizes the children of darkness. The same sort of violence that characterized your past. The same sort of violence that was applied on Christ. Whatever else the world is up to, you can no longer engage in the same ways if you have become a child of light. In fact, it is the church's primary vocation to extend the peace and reconciliation of the Lord to the whole world. And even if that means you get a fist instead. Now, the letter is written to the Colossians and not to the saints in Burbank. This is important to understand because while they have their own social, religious, cultural context informing them, we have our own. We might think that this philosophy they've absorbed is strange. We have a certain set of our own social, cultural, religious philosophies coloring the ways in which we understand the gospel. The challenge to us is to find where our local or even national context is subverting or corrupting the gospel of Christ. My question or challenge to you is, what sort of philosophies have you taken in that need to be brought to this cosmic ruler for whom all reality exists, who is the head of the church, the body? Could it be your republican politics? For that matter, could it be your democratic, democrat politics? or the way you conduct your business? In what ways are you dualistic? In what ways have you synthesized the gospel with ideologies, whether national or otherwise? Do these need to be placed under the scrutiny in order to see whether or not Christ is really preeminent <clears throat> and supreme, or something else is happening here. Can you be honest before God with all of these? 
if you allow this hymn, which what it is, to overtake you, and it has already overtaken us, we just need to get on with it. If you sing this praise to the king long enough, there could be no more business as usual, politics as usual, loyalties and allegiance as usual. Personally, I have had many rounds of putting my philosophies and ideologies under the scrutiny of Christ because they had grown wild. They had grown weird. Even though I should have known better given my own journey. I had mentioned that um, my experience as an atheist, well, the story doesn't end there or else I wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> the other part of the story is that in the midst of this darkness, I experienced something that I've never been able to put into adequate enough words, so I won't. It stretches language beyond its limits. What I could say is that after that experience, I had no doubt that I had encountered the very bedrock of reality, Christ himself. It was an experience of being transferred from the domain of darkness into, into light. The void of the cosmos was filled with absolute being, the fullness of Christ. Life in this world became meaningful, full of purpose, full of light. So when I came to this passage in Colossians, and this incredible description of Christ, it was as if Paul was putting to words what I could not put into words that was related to what I had experienced. So you could see, obviously, how this has become my favorite passage. Yet over the years, I adopted views that are common in many Christian circles. And eventually the fullness of Christ and his gospel, this wonderful picture, became synthesized with philosophies and political and national ideologies that I had absorbed. Staunch ideologies. I pray that I will not do that again. It is too precious of a gift to know the king of reality and the task he has called the church for, for it to be compromised by wisdom of mere mortals. So as I challenge you today, I speak as one who has been challenged himself. It is not the intent of my sermon to give you five steps of solving anything, let alone these questions that are deep questions. So they need deep reflection and deep prayer. My intention has simply been to raise the question, raise the challenge, perhaps anticipating a longer conversation for another day, or perhaps anticipating you stoning me after I'm done with my <laughs> sermon.
I know I've seen something with his, in his hand. <laughs> with the gift of faith, you are touching the bedrock of reality. So when we turn to this part, the climax of our service, service, the Eucharist, we begin to celebrate the Eucharist and pass on to share the peace, pause. Be mindful as to what you are about to do. You are about to enter into the communion with the very essence of reality. The king who is at the center of the cosmos who has also become your peace. So when you do share that peace, pray that you will receive power to take this peace out into an unjust and violent world in which you have become agents of reconciliation. Amen.